and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex, and I am joined today by senior TechCrunch reporter on EdTech and early stage, Natasha Mascarenas. Natasha, hello, and how are you? I'm okay. I guess I don't really cover EdTech that much anymore, so we should update that in the script. <laughs> Let's keep this, though, because it's fun to update people. Yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> all right. And then next up, we have senior TC reporter Marianne Azevedo, who covers fintech and the middle of America, which I hope is still accurate. Marianne, is that true? Uh, sometimes, yes. <laughs> Alex, what do you cover these days? Aren't you our public markets reporter? <laughs> Not really. I just I was just the only person who would do it for years at TechCrunch. Like I became the earnings guy because no one else wanted to do it. It's just one of those like, I mean, TC runs lean, and so you know you have to kind of fill things in, and that's how we got there. And now you know a decade later, I still do it. So there you go. Momentum. So you're good at it, so that's what happens. So. All right. Well, sadly, today is not public markets focused to my great chagrin, but we do have a hell of a lot of startup stuff if that's your jam. So we're going to kick off with deals of the week involving Polywork, Block Party, and a thing called Remote First, which is a very interesting name that we'll get to shortly. Then we're going to talk about specialized insurtech and how companies in this space are still somehow raising capital. And then we're going to talk about Instacart versus DoorDash, a battle of the titans, and then uh, layoffs because Natasha's on the show and therefore the Grim Reaper will be with us <laughs> until the end of time. Um, but we're going to kick off with something else actually entirely, which is that we're going to just nibble on what happened post-Ethereum merge. Natasha, I know you are a resident crypto expert, so what's going on? <laughs> so last week we actually actually had a really fun crossover episode precisely because I'm not a crypto expert between us and Chain Reaction about the merge and basically Ethereum moving from proof of work to proof of stake. Ton of impact. Most of it was around the fact that it will help them bring down environmental costs. That was the one that at least that stood out to me the most. But as Jacqueline Melanick reported this week, I mean, the price dropped more than 17% and, and now people are saying it's overhyped. So I mean, what, what, what happened? <laughs> Well, here's my take. The merge was a very important technical change. But if you just used Ethereum, like let's say you're a big fan of minting NFTs of your physical art, uh, nothing changed that much for you. Gas fees uh, aren't expected to really drop in this particular upgrade. Things kind of are as they were. And so if you move from POW to POS or proof of work to proof of stake, um, I think people were less than whelmed by it, but actually that kind of makes sense. It was a back-end change, Marianne. So maybe people who were hoping for a price bump were the ones who were being too optimistic. Yeah. I mean, if it was back-end, it probably wasn't that different from what people were used to seeing. Yeah. I will say though, optimism was there and a 16%, 70% drop, Natasha, does seem to be more than was in the realm of thought. Yes. And my, my last note is that during our podcast and even in this piece, Jackie kept using the phrase like a lot of analysts believe that it was, quote, baked in to the price, just kind of the reaction to the merge because it's been in the works for, I think, many years, if at least months. And so, again, she's saying that some analysts believe that, that it, everything's kind of baked in. And I don't really know what to make of that, if that's just bullishness or semantics at this point. I feel like analysts will say what analysts say. <laughs> Yeah, well, this brings up the famous point that an analyst is just a blogger in a suit. Um, so, you know, think about that when you read analyst quotes. But I'll, I'll just say that being baked in or priced in is just kind of like market speak, if you don't know, for if something's known to be coming, then people pre-trade what's going to happen. Right. And then when it happens, people have already made their trades. And so the actual event may not have as much of an impact as you would think because it is 
baked in or already priced in. So that's kind of what that means. Uh, we'll keep tabs on the price of crypto as we go along. There's lots to keep an eye on there, but we're going to hard pivot to the world of startups. And we're going to kick off with a thing called Polywork, which sounds like a joke, um, but it's actually a very important company. So Natasha, what's going on with Polywork and why are they in the news today? Oh my God. I am so glad we're talking about this on equity because I wrote this last week, but I really wanted to be in the show because it's something we care about. It's yet another LinkedIn-esque competitor. It's basically building a professional network that wants to help people express a more multi-hyphenated work persona. And so all three of us, for example, are not just journalists. We're podcasters. We're newsletter writers. We do many more things outside the realm of writing stories on the internet. And there should be a place for us to express it. And I really liked, honestly, this company for many reasons. But one was just kind of like this awareness that people shouldn't just be defined on what kind of they are doing presently and what they did in the past. But what if we could express what people want to do? I want to write a book. Can I express that in like a profile setting and kind of advertise that beyond my Twitter bio? To me, that's kind of a cool pitch. And maybe I was, I was in a good mood when I interviewed, but I, I was really excited by this company. I have noticed that in your Twitter bio, you do say that you want to write a book. And I thought that was actually one of the one of the more kind of honest things out there. But for people who are not familiar with Polyworks product, Natasha, what does it really do aside from granting me the ability to better express myself and my professional hopes? Yeah. So when you log on, you basically create a profile that explains like all the things you have done, but also the things that you are doing and want to do. And that was honestly what it got its first kind of splash onto the market around, okay, we can go and express that we want to do all these things. Over the past year or so, it realized that it had to be a place that people go to to do more than express themselves. And so now the reason I wrote about them this week was they raised a 28 million Series B. But more interestingly, they say that they found product market fit in helping people find other people to collaborate with. So if you have an idea for a podcast, you can go to Polywork to find a co-host or a guest. And they want to do it at scale. And they think that they can do it if they're able to connect other people who maybe have a nine to five job, full time is their focus area, but want to kind of add supplemental things to their resume. I thought the idea of helping people collaborate was a very good one. And it, it does make sense. I can't tell you how many times people have DM'd me asking for like, okay, I want to do this, but I need someone who can do this. Do you know anybody? Mm -hmm. So like this could be the perfect place for people like that. Um, and 28 million is is not, you know, it's a pretty decent amount for a round. I was intrigued though that they don't seem to have a revenue model yet. Yeah. Yeah, they, they don't have a revenue model yet. I mentioned earlier that it's kind of a LinkedIn-esque company. They cutely said that it's a network for collaboration while LinkedIn is a network for full-time opportunities. <laughs> and spam. <laughs> uh, they didn't say that, but I will say that for them. I think that's connected because LinkedIn monetizes through like advanced search for LinkedIn premium. And Polywork is is going to do something in the future like that, they say, mm. maybe. But okay. kind of weird to see no revenue model in 2022. I, I was surprised. I, yeah. I think actually LinkedIn is the reason why they get away with that. Because LinkedIn is evidence that once you get a professional group of people together in a digital setting, it monetizes out the wazoo. LinkedIn right. has... Uh, they bought that ed tech company and made like LinkedIn Learning. They have ads. They have recruiter tools. I mean, LinkedIn, Microsoft didn't buy it to try to monetize it. You know, it used to be a public company, if I recall correctly. So like there's a lot of juice there. 28 million is interesting. And uh, Natasha, one last thing. Andreessen, which led the A, didn't lead the B. Love that you noticed the detail that I noticed. Um, they Yeah, mm -hmm. so the Series B was led by former GitHub CEO and caffeinated capital. I've been seeing caffeinated capital on more yeah. cap tables lately. And that's 
that's not a tongue twister or anything. Um, but yeah, Andreessen <laughs> didn't Andreessen didn't uh, lead the series A round. I know that they have a lot of bets in the community focused world that aren't going as well as they hoped. So maybe that's a factor. But we didn't talk about that too much on the interview. Okay, well, we will bring them back up when we get some numbers on usage growth and also they figure out the first step in their monetization journey because I am really, really curious. But I do love to see people picking it at the edges of LinkedIn uh, because that means maybe at some point in time, we'll supplant it. All right. Um, (laughs) Next up though, sticking to the theme of social media is a company called Block Party just put together a $4.8 million seed round. This is a company that you might be familiar with just from seeing people talk about it on Twitter. And you may also be familiar with Tracy Chu, who is a, a well-known um, persona, I think, in technology. Yeah. And I picked this round because I was very curious. Because I'm familiar with block lists, which is like, let's say Marianne has found the 58 trolls in fintech on Twitter. She could share a list with me and I could just auto-block all of them and save myself a lot of grief and just misery, right? Uh, Block Party does that kind of at scale. And I'm curious, before we get into how it does business, have either of you either used Block Party or used a block list before? I've not. I'm not. No, I haven't. I was I was impressed though that the screenshots that were uh, included in the story made it look really, really cool and like easy to easy. use and actually useful, you know, like something that you can really benefit from. Yeah. I mean, and the reason I haven't used it, I think honestly, well, maybe at a certain level I will end up using it and I hope I don't. It's a weird thing to like look forward yeah. toward. But right. um at this point I I block one off and I think part of that's because it's too much effort to like think about mm-hmm. it. I just don't have time. So Alex, I feel like this company fits into that. Exactly. I was going to say, if you've used a block list tool before, they're a little bit clunky. They're a little bit hacky, not in a, not in a rude way, but just in terms of what the technology allowed before. And what I think Block Party has done is taken this idea, this thing that some people do need, especially I think if you write about, just to pick a topic, uh, the politics of race in America. Imagine. You're you're gonna probably have some trolls that you wanna get rid of just so you can you know live. And so they've built a UI around this. They're gonna be working to expand to other social networks. And they have a very clear monetization strategy, which caught my eye. And so not only do they have a premium and supporter version, there's even a bump, 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 enterprise sales link. Ooh. So they are thinking yeah. about bringing this to the enterprise. I mean, good for them. I thought it was really cool because they were they were pointing out that Twitter, you know, Twitter will come in and get involved if it's someone doing something blatantly against like their policies. But sometimes people are just mean and you don't want to hear from them, you know, and Twitter technically can't do anything about that. But Block Party gives you a way to like, okay, I don't have to I don't have to hear from this person. I don't have to hear from people responding to that person, you know, and so I think I think that's something that a lot of people can, can, as I said, could use, can benefit from. And the fact that they're looking to move to other platforms is, is smart, makes sense. I'm curious to see how this company grows. Yeah, absolutely. And like, to show you what they've kind of come up with, there's even like a helper mode in Block Party. So like, let's say Natasha's under a lot of incoming fire. Marianne and I are on the phone with her, being supportive, telling her that she's not a troll. As you and do. She's actually a great person. <laughs> uh, we could actually, in the helper mode, go in and actually help her block people. Whoa, I think if I understand the product cool. correctly. So you can kind of like, if you're a brand or you're a individual with a lot of incoming stuff, you can get your team or friends to kind of rally around. So I, I, I started off 
prepping for this, kind of like block party raise money. And now I'm like, block party raise money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I want to bring like an ounce of my skeptical side here, which is what happens. So right now it seems like Twitter is playing nice with block party. It's working with them to make sure this, this works well. But what incentive does Twitter have to not launch a version of this themselves? Maybe they can acquire Block Party, but like, I don't know. Yeah, little, I mean, like- that's that's the thing. I don't think Twitter wants to deal with it because as she pointed out, Twitter actually benefits from engagement, wants to see engagement. So incentives, um, yeah. I think, yeah, I mean, they do want to work with Block Party. And I think it's easier to do that than having to build out this sort of technology themselves. It doesn't sound like they want to waste their not waste is not my word, but in my mind, that's their word, waste their resources on that. So they're like, okay, somebody else is already doing it. Let's work with them. And then, yeah, you never know. Maybe they will acquire it one day. I'll just say this. If they did try to kill it or just tried to cut off its access so it couldn't couldn't operate, talk about a bad PR move. Yeah, yeah that's that fair. That would not be good. Here's a shield for women of color made by women of color. And then they stab it? Like, no, that's... I mean, Twitter has made some questionable product decisions in the past, but even under Elon Musk, I don't think it would be that stupid. Oh, don't think uh, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I think like my, my big question for them going forward, if it's not going to be, are you just going to be acquired, would then be, what does it take for someone to download this? Is it going to be like that one-off moment where someone is being harassed? I think if you're like a female tech journalist, for example, that might happen every day. But I feel like it might be like a wide range of very different users, which feels like maybe productizing is a pain for. Yeah, I just have to quickly point out, I was impersonated this week on Twitter. I saw someone that. created that at a fake account. So weird. Added a one to my Twitter handle, used my photos. So icky. And fooled a lot of people, apparently. Yeah, it's very icky. Anyway, I don't know if that counts as online harassment, but it is it is not a good feeling. It, it does because you were harassed online. I mean, like impersonating someone maliciously. I mean, Natasha, back me up or not. But 100%. Like, that, okay. Someone said that they were having a good conversation with the fake me and then figured it out when I tried to sell them Bitcoin. Oh my God. Okay. Marianne is trying to sell people Bitcoin needs to be the headline of the show. Even though we're anti-harassment here, that's like absurd. Are you kidding? Oh my God. I'm sorry. I just had to bring Terrifying. that up. That's like me selling like a seminary course for the Catholic Church. You're like, huh, that doesn't really fit the personality <laughs> that I had in mind for that person. <laughs> or then Natasha doing like a like a stakes on demand service, right? Because right? it could have been us. That, that, that's how you know. That's not us. Yeah. If, if Mary tries to sell you Bitcoin, oh my gosh. I, now I'm curious like like why they picked you. But listen, guys, we have we have a lot. So I'm going to screw this along. Okay, yeah. Mary Ann, your deal of the week is a company that I can't pronounce because it seems to be missing a letter or two. So what's going on? Yeah, I think I think you said it right, Remo first. I was really intrigued by this company and I'll tell you why. This is a really hot space. I've covered um, its competitor deal repeatedly. And so what the company does is like it helps businesses. It actually builds an infrastructure and other countries and hires people, hires employees for the businesses, sets up payroll, deals with compliance, taxes, all the stuff that nobody wants to do. And they handle all that for the business. So these businesses can have remote employees in other parts of the world. Okay. So Deal does a very similar thing. I was trying to understand some of the differences. And I was told that for one, Deal started out working with contractors specifically. Um, Remote First uh, is actually helping businesses hire employees like that are on staff. We'll even help them, you know, get insurance and things like that in their in their locales. Um, so they raised this $14.1 million seed round and they haven't been around that long, but they seem to have like 
pretty impressive traction so far. I think they only launched early 2021. They said within like 12 months time, they had seven figures revenue numbers. They were actually cash flow positive for a little while. Now they're focused on growth. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so yeah, they seem to be doing well. And they claim another way they're different from competitors is really focusing on being um, cheaper. Honestly, they're like, they're claiming to be two to three times cheaper than others in the space and say that they're working on a product that'll make them about 10 times cheaper. Even we'll see about that. But, um, but yeah, they seem, they seem to be growing. Yeah. I mean, two things like, well, first of all, you took half my talking points that I had to bring up. So I'm sad, (laughs) but I'm going to say that the the two other things that came to mind, one is a question and one's just a point. One is they tried so hard to not be a basic named company, but just like took out one letter and that was it. And that's where we are right now. And that just two, two, two. (laughs) we're missing the T and the E. And the E. You're so right. It's it's not remote first. It's just remote first. Part of me is like, it would just be great for your SEO if you just made it remote first. Like, I don't, the T, saving the T and E does not do as much as you think it is. No offense, but really cool idea. Agreed. And loved that they talked about competitors with you. That is like my new prereq for talking to founders. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes. Mm -hmm. One thing you, you answered it kind of, but you mentioned that unlike deal, which started with contractors, remote first is working with full-time employees or just employees. Mm -hmm. Do you think that it's doing anything differently around like this idea that sometimes when a U.S. company hires internationally, it's going to do it as like, this is like a small office or is it for people who want to create like a split HQ or am I looking too deep into it? No, I think it's more like I don't think so much as a headquarters. Okay. Um, in fact, it's it's a little bit the opposite because they don't want to have to set up an entity in these countries. They don't want to have to deal with the expense and the headache of setting up entities in the various countries. So that's why they work with Remote First to do it. And yeah, they might want to like hire dozens of people in a particular place. But they just don't want to deal with all the pain and the ass stuff. So um, and and. They do work with contractors, but it's a small portion of their business, I think about 10%. And so, you know, that might change later. But for now, yes, predominantly um, full-time employees and they work with startups, they work with enterprises, Nice. you know, the whole range of companies. You know, I was thinking about their work to limit the price of this, especially in comparison mm-hmm. to competitors. And I was like, why would you do that? Why not just get like 20% cheaper and then just ride that? But here's the thing. Natasha made a really good point. If you wanted to build an HQ in the UK or Malaysia or Australia or wherever, and you went to a company like Remote First or Deal, you would eventually be like, why are we paying so much money to have someone else do this for us? Maybe we'll just do it ourselves. But mm-hmm. if Remote First can make it dramatically cheaper, maybe you never leave the platform and all that revenue stays super sticky. Yeah, and that's a good point. And also one other thing I'd like to point out, I think I mentioned, um, I think it's impressive that this company did what it did, like get to that point with revenue, get to cash flow positive with with not much funding. It had only raised previously a pre-seed round of $275,000 and built this on that. So the 14.1 million came later um, after they'd reached that seven figures in revenue. And I think that's what attracted investors, QED, co-led, um, Moro Capital also co-led. Um, so I, I'm definitely gonna be tracking how this company grows over time. A question that I have is, is that seven figure revenue net revenue or is that kind of gross salary flow through. But when it comes to startups that have interesting revenue statistics, few things are more confounding to understand than the world of insurance. 
Marianne, we have a <laughs> number of companies here and we're going to talk about gross premium. We're going to talk about the cost thereof and how we're going to handle claims and all that. And somehow we have some good news about InsureTech. Yeah, yeah. So actually this week I wrote about three different companies in the InsureTech space Wild. that raised money. Yeah, three. So of course we had to make this a theme. Um, I started the week out writing about two um, very specialized product companies. And I, I I thought it was super interesting. One of them is focused like on insuring people who own e-bikes, motorcycles, ATVs, snowmobiles, things like that. Now, to be clear, other insurers do offer insurance on things like motorcycles and uh, other like ATVs and stuff like that. It's not totally new, but the e-bike thing I hadn't heard of. Um, and then they also just claim to be, you know, cheaper, once again, uh, faster to to work with and very specialized in terms of what they offer. And so I was thinking about e-bikes and I was like, hmm, how would that work? So like if you crash your e-bike, you could, you know, file a claim. And they're like, well, you know, it's actually more than that. Like say you're on your e-bike and you somehow are involved in an accident, right? Like maybe you accidentally cause an accident. Um, well, then there's going to be a things, right? You might have to pay for damage to someone's car if someone gets hurt. So you you might need insurance without even realizing it. When, when you're describing that, I'm thinking, okay, like this feels like the perfect startup and focus for a corporate venture capital firm. Because like, makes sense to be on the same team. Are the investors at all in that world? Or is it, are we seeing like generalist investors coming back to the insure tech space? I, I guess like American Family Ventures doesn't exactly sound like oh, a motorbike. yeah. So American Family Ventures and Cross Country Group actually started this company. So you are so oh. like on the right track, Natasha. And then they recruited someone else to come in um, to be a co-founder and CEO. So, um, and then if we wanted to look up cross-country group, I think you're you're on the right track. So there is like a, an interest in this. Yeah. yeah it, American Family Ventures is probably part of the American Family Insurance Company. Yeah. yeah. For whom I can sing the jingle because I hate insurance ads with a fiery passion. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. No, but but you're actually, you know, Spot on with that, Natasha. And then another company that I wrote about in the same story, um, they are focused on insuring prefab homes or manufactured homes, which could be ADUs, um, just prefabricated homes in general. So that's their very specific focus. And so the two things that these companies are doing, they're honing in on growing markets. Um, E-bikes are like growing like crazy all over the world. Sales are just going higher and higher and probably aren't going to slow down uh, any anytime soon. Uh, same with prefab homes. We've have, we have housing shortages. Um, sustainability is an issue with both of these products. So like there's a lot of a lot of uh, similarities between what these two companies are doing. And the second one's called CoverTree. CoverTree. Yes, indeed. CoverTree. And they raised, it was, I think, a 10 million, right? 10 million round. 8 million seed, 2 million pre-seed. I think they announced it as yeah. a bucket. Yeah. As companies right, do. Right. Exactly. These days. But, mm -hmm. but, but all of this, Marianne, pales in comparison to the simply tectonic amount of money that Pi raised. Yes. So, I mean, this blew me away. I almost thought it was a typo. I was sure that there was debt involved, but <laughs> Pi Insurance raised a $315 million Series D this week, which is like so much money right now. And I, and I tweeted about this, like last year we would have, you know, it wouldn't have even turned our heads, right? This much money. Um, but now this is huge. I can't remember the last time that I've covered a round of this size. Um, and so Pi Insurance is also pretty specialized. It's 
why we're talking about this. Um, they provide workers' compensation insurance to small businesses. And wow, they seem to be doing well. They they told me that it, um, the company increased its annualized run rate premium to nearly $300 million in the first four months of this year. Their annual premium run rate is now $300 million. They said that they that that's what it was in the first four months of this year. Okay. So did they tell you anything about their loss rates or how loss adjustment expenses come into play to impact their insurance-specific margins? No, because unfortunately, this was one of those things that were, it was covered sort of at the last minute. So I didn't get to do as an in-depth interview like I would have liked. Um, that's why, hey, companies, if you're listening the more notice, the better that you give us on these things so we can actually really do very thoughtful pieces and not hurried ones, which I felt was the case here. But no, they did not. They just said they more than doubled their gross written premium in the first quarter um, of this year compared to last year and more than doubled the number of policyholders and insurance agency partners because it does work with um, partners. I guess the fact that there's like growth to show may have helped part of the round. But if we, as we've kind of been alluding to this whole segment, we know that there's this big chill around InsureTech. When you were covering these three companies, were you finding yourself convincing yourself that they were like interesting enough to get funding? Like, How surprised were you on a scale of one to 10? I mean, yeah, as Alex has, has covered quite a lot and I have as well, that the different larger players in the InsureTech space, especially those that went public, aren't doing that great. We have Root, uh, Lemonade, Metro Mile that got acquired by Lemonade. So the only thing I can think of is this specialized route may be more successful or may have hold more potential or promise than the very more general direction that the other companies were taking. Um, that remains to be seen, but I, I will say it did pique my interest because they were different enough to make me want to write about them. Um, and it also it's, we, we kind of, we can kind of see a similar thing going on. And of course I have to bring up like banking, fintech, um, neobanks, digital banks, where there's been a growing number of digital banks focused on very specific demographics, for example, right. like certain populations, that that kind of thing. So you're seeing that trend there as well. Yeah, I felt kind of crazy when I, I feel like the, obviously like neobanks are dead headlines were then co- like immediately responded to with these like demographic focused neobanks. Mm-hmm. And so in my head, I'm like, is there even like a similarity? And have we seen demographic focused neobanks win enough that these startups may have been helped? Or do you feel like their businesses are so different that it's just like vaguely tied? I feel like they're pretty different. But um, and I think the verdict is still out okay. on these digital banks, to be honest with you. I, I don't I remember covering quite a lot of them last year. I haven't heard from as many of them this year. So I don't really, I, I even thought about it. I'd love to like get an update. Like, how are you doing? You know, are you growing? What's what's going on? So um, I think the biggest thing they all have in common is just have this more narrow focus. Yeah. When I think about success in the neobanking world, I think about Chime and Newbank. Essentially, Newbank yeah. and Public. Chime is maybe someday, possibly, hopefully, perhaps going to go public. Uh, But I mean, we have a couple of success stories of generalist neobanks from the earlier Mm -hmm. generation. Then they went niche. In the InsurTech case, and why I like Natasha's directional point is that we had the same thing. People went broad. They took on auto insurance or 
home insurance or renter's insurance, thinking about Metro Mile, uh, Hippo, and then Root, I think. And they struggled. And now we're seeing this second, second tier of companies come mm -hmm. in, uh, not second tier in terms of quality, but second generation maybe, and with more specific focuses. And I wonder if that helps with underwriting, customer segmentation, customer mm -hmm. acquisition costs. Like I wonder if maybe in InsureTech, it makes more sense to go niche than big versus big than niche. I don't hate that. Yeah. Yeah. Just a vibe. I think it makes a lot of sense. Let's keep mm -hmm. looking at public markets for explanations on startup trends and talk about Instacart, the IPO that we are all waiting for. And we need to like live tweet, live stream something when it happens. Alex. Oh, I know. <laughs> oh absolutely. I mean, I... <laughs> is we throw a party? Like, is that weird? Is that too nice? <laughs> I mean, it's definitely too nice. It's definitely weird. But I don't see how that precludes us from doing it. Right. Fair. I agree. I agree. I, it's pretty fascinating. Uh, anyways, the, the, the gist is Instacart's IPO is continuing to move forward. The journal reported not only is the company still doing talks about this, but it may actually not raise that much money in its IPO. Ah, you're thinking it's going to direct list. No, it's going to do a small primary offering and a large secondary offering, essentially allowing investors and early employees to sell their stock while raising just a little bit of money for the company, which I then brutally extrapolated into the company's not burning that much cash because I'm so hungry and desperate for Instacart factoids that I'm literally like half constructing no. them myself. <laughs> I thought the same thing though, Alex. I was like, you know, they don't seem desperate here. Um, this doesn't feel like a desperate move. It's certainly bold. It's brave in this environment. We're not seeing yeah. very many companies go public. Um, and the more I learn about what Instacart is doing, the more like I'm thinking they're, they're doing they're doing something right. Um, and, you know, they're growing into software and, and offering software to retailers and things like that. So they're definitely diversifying and not just this grocery delivery company anymore. Definitely not. And I think we're seeing an interesting uh, anti-nichification of companies mm -hmm. in this space. Because if you think mm -hmm. about DoorDash, what do you use DoorDash for? For me in San Francisco, it was bringing Mission Chinese to my house, uh, which is a very important service if you live in the city, because that's that's amazing. I love that place. I miss it. Anyways, we're seeing uh, DoorDash expand from this early remit to do a lot more stuff. And DoorDash announced this week a lot of partnerships with other grocers and retailers. And I was going through this list and I was like, all right, I'm going to expect to see, you know, grocery stores that I recognize. But it was like Dick Sporting Goods, Giant mm -hmm. Eagle, like mm -hmm. a lot of brands, Big Lots, I think was in there. So a, right. a, a diverse array. So DoorDash is going not just into grocery, but into stuff. And um, we're seeing Instacart stick to grocery, but also, as we said, expand to software, hardware, platforms, and so forth. So I, the question that I have is, how far can these companies spread their wings, like a giant eagle, perhaps, without um, becoming more more Icarus than um, Wright Brother? Yeah, it's definitely like you're betting on a totally new consumer habit if you think someone's going to get like a like pair of sneakers and a volleyball via delivery service instead of groceries because groceries are pretty like regular and so when I think of Dick's Sporting Goods I'm not going there once a week once a month even so to me it's a little like ambitious but in some ways refreshing because we usually I mean I feel like I would think about Uber's expansion of ride sharing to food delivery and if you're already doing food delivery you're probably not going to do ride sharing because that doesn't make sense so where do you go next it's kind of cool in a nerdy way to see what they think I mean yeah, I, I think that, you know, Amazon, and I kind of almost hate to bring them up right now, but they have played a little bit of a role in that people in general are just, you know, expecting things to, to be coming to their homes much faster. That's true. And beyond groceries, right? Like, you know, my children, for example, because of Amazon Prime, and like, even when we don't 
pay extra. It's like, oh, okay, it'll be there later today from like 5 to 10 p.m. And I'm like, they have no idea what it's like to have to wait a week for something, right? And a so week? I, I, yeah. Or I more. Mean, Right. So I, I don't know. So like when you talk about a place like Dick's Sporting Goods, I mean, in general, I could see, okay, say, you know, being a parent, your kid has a game or something and you need, you're desperately need like gear. Okay. You, you know, get That's on true. demand Dick's. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I'm not, I don't know how successful this is going to be. Um, I will be curious once again to see how it works out. I do agree it's ambitious. Um, but I think in general, people are expecting more on demand of everything. So it's not like that far out in left field. Yeah. Well, consumer behavior does change over time. And we have seen things like video games go from the edges of society right to the center of culture. So much so that an old far side joke about parents finding a video game tutor for their child to beat Mario has <laughs> somehow come to life. Natasha, but sadly, this is also our layoff section. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Great transition, but I'm going to take it again. Yeah. To a pretty negative turn, which is Medify, a company that Alex has covered on the show a ton of times. Marketplace for video game coaching laid off 23% of its staff last week, and that primarily impacted its product design and engineering teams. Um, it's a small startup, so the layoff impacted 12 full-time employees, and it comes after Medify raising from some of the biggest names in venture, including Tiger Global, 776, Forerunner, DCM. One of the latest layoff pieces that I've written in a while, and I, I think part of it, Alex, honestly, was because the founder responded to requests for comment in a way that felt a little bit more authentic than the canned statements I've gotten from 99.9% .9 of founders who have had to conduct layoffs. Yeah. This is a weird moment in which we're going to go ahead and say very nice things about someone who's going through a very painful part of their business life. And so we don't mean to conflate our praise of, of Josh Fabian for what happened to Medify. Obviously, layoffs are always tough and we think about people before profits here on the show. So, yeah. Huh. But... I like Josh, the CEO of Medify, a lot because he is a person versus a persona, if that makes sense. Right. Like when I talk to him, mm -hmm. I, I don't see him going through his mental catalog of talking points that were approved by a committee to tell me the right one. You're just talking mm -hmm. to, to Josh Labian. And um, so that helped. And they also disclosed a lot of data that I thought was very useful to frame this around where they actually are financially in terms of revenue and growth. So points. Agree. I mean, it's very refreshing. Um, he was very transparent about a lot of things in, in terms of how the business is doing. And and as Natasha wrote, I mean, they actually doubled revenue recently. So one might think, well, why are you laying off? But, you know, he was candid about it and was like, okay, we should have probably done this even sooner. We're just going in different directions. We don't need people in those positions anymore. Um, I, I did also appreciate that the leadership team took pay cuts before the layoffs happened because I don't hear about that happening very often, like at all. So that that also makes me feel a little bit better and agree 100%, Alex and Natasha. He does seem very real and authentic. We talk to enough founders to tell the difference, believe me. Yeah, I, I want to get into the numbers in a second. I think the only other thing I'll add is like, obviously we don't know details about how this was executed and it's 12 people and they also are telling us that they have almost 18.4 million in cash on hand. And so I think if I was an employee impacted, I find out my company has almost 20 million in, in cash on deck. I can understand the macroeconomic environment, but it also is still a painful situation. And so Alex, I know you gave that disclaimer on the top, but th there's a part of me that's like, transparency is always hard for founders, clearly. We don't see it often, but it's a little easier when it's in retrospect versus ahead of time. 
we don't know exactly how this was handled internally. We know how it's being told externally. So True. just something to think about. I would love to see, we'll link it in the show notes, but I would love to see more people do his approach of writing this long letter mm-hmm. of where how the company's doing right now. It just, it's a lot more than just saying we're cutting staff in response to a volatile market. Yeah. And the company said, or Josh wrote in his letter that they were planning to raise a B in Q4 of this year or Q1 of next year, which would mean they could hire and they would have tons of runway for their current staff size. When you suddenly realize that the cash you have may be the cash, the cash you have yeah. for a long time, um, a reduction in costs, which is essentially mostly people at this stage of a company's life is tough, but it does extend the time you have to mm-hmm. either get to profitability or figure out how to raise more capital. And now the company has runway through February of 2024 and it's currently September of 2022. So they now have essentially a whole round's worth of runway, 18 months, give or take. So I, I understand the layoffs. Also, if I was laid off, and the company hit $18 million in the bank, I'd be like, well, I'll just take one of those with me and then you can have 17 <laughs> and then everyone will be happy. So uh, true. But it turns out that's not how capitalism works, I've been informed. Um, <laughs> I just want to say that one thing I haven't done yet that I'm excited to do is look at these charts that, that uh, Metify shared and then put into place when they raised that last round and then look at the data that led up to it. Because one thing we never get to see is the data the startups share, well, not never, but mostly, the data startups share with investors that gets them excited. And mm-hmm. in this case, mm-hmm. thanks to Josh being awesome, like we have the data. So I'm gonna poke and prod at this and see what I can learn about how, what the market was like last year for companies that were building marketplaces. I would love that, please do that. But unfortunately, there were some other examples of layoffs this week beyond Medify. Everyone takes a different book here, but just running it through it really quickly. Ola cut 200 jobs in India. Sunday laid off around 100 people last week, which Marianne reported in her awesome fintech newsletter. And then there's also reports of Klarna that potentially has laid off around 100 people after doing layoffs just a few weeks prior. So we're seeing cuts continue. Transparency Uh. is is a thing. We got to bring back the BNPL topic. Thanks to that, Natasha. Oh, why? Marianne, well, if Klarna is doing another round of layoffs. Well, you know, last week the news came out where now these companies are going to be scrutinized more here in the US, like by regulators, which took a long time. I don't know why it took so long because they're, they're going to be treated more like credit card companies, which they are very similar to. It's just a, really a different format or method and, and supposedly lower interest rates, but they're very... They're very similar. And so, yeah, they're definitely under the spotlight lately. Yeah. Well, Marianne, I've heard from BNPL providers that they're a very different form of unsecured consumer credit and they're nothing like other facilities. So that must be true. <laughs> Why else would they tell me that? Um, all right. No comment. We're way over time. Um, Marianne, Natasha, as always, thank you for being the absolute highlight of my week. Everybody, equity is back next week. And then don't forget, we are kicking off Disrupt 2022 in San Francisco. Woo-hoo! in person as a three on the TechCrunch Plus stage after I kick off the show. So it's going to be a lot of us. So you should come to Disrupt. And if you want to save 15%, use the code equity and uh, save yourself a couple of ducats. And uh, in the meantime, Natasha and Marianne, let's head off into this weekend. Let's do it. Bye. 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 Bye.